Welcome to the Next Level Show, where we talk with people behind Next Level ideas, products, and technology that are changing the world around us. I'm Lubo Smith, the co-founder and CEO of STRV. And my guest today is Harry Gestetner, the co-founder and co-CEO of Fanpix, the leading exclusive content platform empowering Gen Z creators to do what they love while earning from it. Gary started Fanfix while still in college and managed to exit only 10 months after launch for eight figures of US dollars. In this episode, Harry shares how he built Fanfix alongside his co-founders, what makes Fanfix stand out against players like Patreon, and what it's like growing, scaling, and exiting a business at such an early age. So let's dive right in. Hey, Harry. Hey. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm so curious to find out what it's like to really achieve a huge success in an extremely early age. How old are you right now? Is that 22 or? Yes, I'm 22. Yes. I mean, I definitely, I think about the the Winston Churchill quote, you know, success is not final, failure is not fatal. It's the car to continue. So definitely, definitely it's it's nice, but but not, not the end. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, you have a whole journey ahead of you, but it is amazing with Fanfix. I want to learn a lot about how you came up with the idea, how you differentiate yourself from others. But the the, the reason what, what caught our attention and why I wanted to chat is that you managed to get Fanfix acquired in an extremely short time frame for a very sizable amount. How how fast was it? Can you disclose the amount? Yeah, can't disclose the amount, but it was it was uh, it was 10 months from launch to exit, so it was very very quick and definitely quicker than we had anticipated. Got it, got it. But based on the rumors that are floating on the internet, it seems like it's been around in the eight-figure range of USD. It, that, that's correct, yes. That's amazing to get to that in only 10 months. I don't, I don't I... understand. But before we go into this, let's dive a little deeper and see what set the foundation for you to be able to do that, what were your early days like? What what set you up, and how you met with uh, your co-founders? Yeah, I've always been an entrepreneur, kind of as long as I can remember. I was always starting things, wanting to start things. Always had this insatiable itch to to be building something and working on a new idea and taking on some risk. And then I met my co-founder Simon in high school. We went to high school together out here in LA. And became close friends and then went off to college, different colleges, and came back during COVID. We were sophomores in our second year of university when COVID hit and asked and a couple of friends. So I just co-founded a charity and our thesis was to use social media marketing to raise five, ten dollar donations from college students for healthcare workers and ended up turning into one of the largest student organizations at the time, certainly in the US. Probably, probably the world as well, and uh, had about 140 volunteers, and then uh, raised about half a million dollars for healthcare workers. It was really exciting and really, really, really fun, and also was having amazing impact. And then charity wound down as COVID sort of progressed, and then 
went back to school and sort of end of 2020, my cousin blew up on TikTok, went viral, got tens of millions of views and couldn't make any money. And we were pretty, pretty shocked, did some research, saw that this is quite a common trend and creators were struggling to monetize. And there are, there are, you know, there are two parts to, 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 to being a creator. It's part one is discovery. Part two is monetization. Discovery was easy. Discovery was happening and discovery had been revolutionized and democratized with the rise of TikTok. But monetization was, was really not happening. And, and, and the majority of creator monetization was through brand deals, which underserve a, a vast majority of creators. And so our thesis was we, we were very long on direct monetization and we wanted, you know, we saw that a lot of these smaller creators, they didn't have access to brand deals. Brands didn't want to work with them, so they weren't making any money, but they still had very passionate fans. They still had very deep communities. So why weren't they making any money? So, and, and, and actually I saw a statistic recently where, so at the time, at the time, subscription direct monetization was less than 1% of creative monetization. Brand deals were 77%. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a report that for, for small to medium-sized creators, 48% of creative monetization, which is the number one form of monetization for those creators, is from direct monetization, subscription, messaging, et cetera. So that's, that's really exciting to see, and we've been at the forefront of that. And uh, yeah, we saw that there were... There were two incumbents in the space. It was Patreon and OnlyFans. OnlyFans is a porn site and very, very, <laughs> very explicit content, big stigma for creators joining it. And whereas, you know, Patreon was for a much older demographic, more YouTube first, more desktop first. And, and, and we thought there had to be, there was a big gap in the market for with Gen Z creators, for Gen Z fans, TikTok first, mobile first. We're Gen Z ourselves, you know, I was, 20, 20 years old at the time and 22 now and, and, and yeah, so set about building the platform, launched it August of 2021 and then we ended up a few months later bringing on a, a, a big celebrity kind of creator co-founder, Cameron Dallas and the platform really took off, really resonated and with creators and Creators were earning so much money on the platforms and fans were loving it. And so creators would go and tell all their friends and friends would want to join. So it really exploded organically and still, still to this day, the growth has been organic. And, and then fast forward, I think, uh, you know, creators will earn by the end of this year, they'll, they'll have earned close to hundred billion dollars on our platform. That's crazy. How did you manage to kickstart the company while still being in college? How did you combine the two? Yeah, well, I was very lucky. We were very lucky because it was Zoom era. We were during COVID, so so school was over Zoom, but also you know work was over Zoom. So rather than you know when we when we wanted to raise money, rather than having to go to Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley and go boardroom to boardroom and be there physically in person and you know break bread and shake hands, we could be in our dorm rooms and taking calls virtually and they would have no idea that we're active students. So 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 that was the main the main thing. We were very lucky that it was during during COVID era not so I, I didn't have to drop out either. You know, stayed and I got a degree. And so th- Congratulations. That's, that's like, thank you. I think that was the rarest part of our story and, and I'm not sure if that we were, you know, active college students at the time of when we sold it and and I'm not sure that particular part 
has has been done before will be able to be replicated much, but just due to sheer luck, because it was it was during the pandemic, and so everything was over Zoom. Nowadays, you can't get away with that as much. <laughs> so now, looking back at the the story being fast tracked, what do you think, in your particular case, was the portion of luck and the portion of hard work? Yeah, I think I think it's it's tough to. Look, I mean, there was a lot of luck. So, you know, luck being this was during pandemic era. Luck being, we sort of saw the timing wise. You know, we saw the the gap in the market early enough to where we were one of the first companies in. And then luck also being timing wise when we sold the company. You know, the markets were very hot, and it was a very good time. And then, you know, luck in that we we managed to find kind of particular creators. And then I, th- I think obviously we, we we also worked extremely hard, and you definitely can't go get away with 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 not working hard. So that was undoubtedly part of it as well. And then we were just extremely persistent and and and, and yeah. not not willing to to kind of let you know you can either yet either let competition or sort of nose from investors, nose from friends, etc. You know people kind of laughing at you. You can either let that. You know, fuel you, or you can let it break you, and we let it fuel us. So, so that was also a big part of it. Yeah, you mentioned seeking investment as being part of the journey and not being the easiest. What is your experience of raising capital in such an early age without having some really strong credentials? It's very, very, very difficult at at such an early age, and we didn't raise a huge amount of capital. We raised about one point three million. Kind of over the course of the the whole business prior to the acquisition, and it's this stuff's just all about leverage, and we had zero leverage. Being active college students, technically first time founders, and you know it was it was very definitely very difficult. And that's not to 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 blame in, or critique investors at all, because you know their job is to 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 it's such a such a low chance of success, and, and so few startups succeed that they've obviously got to go with the founders and the startups that statistically. You know that have the kind of blueprint and and statistically have the most chance of succeeding, and that wasn't us. So 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 yeah. So it was not to blame investors, but it was definitely certainly very very difficult, and it was like rolling a boulder up a hill, and we had to have you know over a hundred meetings to to get any yeses. We were very lucky that we found you know just enough enough people to to back our vision and who believed in us, and to take a massive risk that we got enough capital to to get the ball rolling but it really i think was a good thing because some of our competitors raised lots of lots of money and and got had a lot of money in the bank and a lot of fuel to to put on the fire but it made them complacent and whereas we learned good business principles we we couldn't go for hyper growth in in a time where hyper growth was you know promoted and that wasn't because we didn't want to it was because we didn't have the money to and so we managed to grow this business very organically and very profitably and 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 lean and 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 learn a ton. We were extremely scrappy. <laughs> it's great to hear. Yeah, I definitely would like to learn more about the scrappiness and how you managed to take the one point three million you mentioned. How you take that and what was kind of the split? How did you go about building the product, building the team? Where 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 did you? invest the money and where did you go and be really really scrappy to to make it all work 
Yeah, well, we we outsourced everything. So we had nothing in house and prior to the, the 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 acquisition we only had one full-time employee and in in house and we also had only spent about half the money and so in terms of it, that that's the main just the main cost saving thing we did and it was also an equity saving thing that allowed us to to control the cap table and have a clean cap table and then in terms of scrappiness it's just we just didn't spend money on stupid things and you know we were we were we were also lucky there because we were students so we had you know most things taken care of like we had a roof over our head we had kind of a meal plan at school and we had free office space in classrooms so we we would go out of pocket for almost everything and we you know share rooms where we had to and 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 would never put anything on the business i remember i remember uh, and 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 we just didn't do any marketing. Everything was word of mouth. Everything was ga- organic, and that was that. You know, I think I think not having not having money was the best thing for us because we had to build a product that was good enough and that resonated enough and worked and had enough product market fit to where it the the creators who kind of first joined made so much money, did so well that they automatically went and told all their friends, and then all their friends wanted to join. So we didn't, I think when you, sometimes when you have too much money, you can kind of blitz, blitz growth and, and force growth and, and, you know, just basically use brute force to, to, to fake product market fit. We couldn't do any of that. We had to, we had to launch a very good product. And, and so, so, so yeah, we were, we were very scrappy. I think it's very insightful that you are pushing the journey to, as you mentioned, outsource everything. And there is also people, entrepreneurs that will tell you, don't go outsource, focus on building your team. And it's interesting, you have made it uh, with only one employee to an acquisition. How did you select where, who to work with, who to outsource to, and like, what were like some of the key decisions that you made on that front? Yeah, and so yeah, we at the time of the acquisition we were one employee in house. Now we're kind of almost sixty, and 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 to be honest, I I say we outsourced. I don't encourage anyone else to necessarily outsource everything <laughs> next round. I probably wouldn't, but we didn't have the leverage at the time. We you know we didn't have the money to to hire people. We didn't have the track record to attract good talent. So. You know, no, no one wanted to come and work for two active college students and leave their comfortable jobs. So we couldn't get good talent, and then we didn't have we didn't have the money to pay market salaries. So no one wanted the equity that we could give them, and 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 we couldn't afford their salaries. So that's why we had to next time around we'll have a lot more leverage. But in terms of how we found the 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 places to outsource, we kind of just learned we kind of just learned on the job. You know, we didn't know we had no we 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 had no we hadn't built a but we hadn't at least launched a product or kind of built a serious product yeah i I had a previous business where i had outsourced offshore and it really didn't work and got kind of scammed by various offshore dev shops and 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 the product never launched as a result so with this one i thought a hundred percent we're doing it onshore and we'll pay you know top market rate to do that but we want to do it right and so we just found a local LA development shop. You know, we were lucky that they were competent enough to to get a product out there, and and we just sort of learned on the job. We knew we 
we have this idea. We have no idea how to build it. Who knows how to build it? Development shops. So we'll hire them, you know, signed a contract, didn't have the money to pay it, gave ourselves a few, you know, a few months runway to, to, to raise some money and ended up successfully doing that. And then, and then eventually we, everything's in house now. How, how long did it take you to get the initial product out? And what was your satisfaction of the, of the quality? Did it take long to get everything polished up? Yeah. So we, we launched the initial product, took about six months, six to seven months, and which is you know, relatively quick. And, and, and the product was definitely, definitely decent. The other thing that I had no idea going into this, which shows just how little I knew is, you know, my, my partner and I thought it's, oh, well, we just pay the dev shop to get the product out there and then we're done and we have the product. But we didn't, we didn't realize that actually there is no end. You know, it's not like you put a product out there and you're, and you're done. A product is a living, breathing thing that requires maintenance and constantly requires new features and, and innovation. So, so, so we hadn't even budgeted to continue developers after continue development after six months. And then we quickly realized that we needed to. So, so it took about six months. The, the product was, was nice. It was good. But we could get any creators on. And so, yeah, I say we launched August. We really kind of put the product out there in June, but no one wanted to join. And and we thought we had thought prior, we thought we saw all these creators with oh, a million followers on TikTok, two million followers on TikTok. And we thought, oh wow, if we we got we get all these people, we met all these, we met all these creators, we had them kind of pledge to join fanfics. We thought, oh well, we now have fifty million followers worth of creators pledged to join fanfics. If we can convert just ten percent of that, you know, that's Five million people on the platform. We're going to be huge overnight, and then we realized that actually, just that's just not how it works whatsoever. And it's not. It's not just about with with creators. It's not just about the size of the following. It's about the depth of the following. And it's about the community. And you know, a lot of followers on TikTok doesn't necessarily translate to to, to high conversion. So so we also had to figure out which creators actually convert and 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 pivot a little bit there. And 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 then yeah, we relaunched in august and what was your lesson learned from having the creators to ask the audience to transition from one platform to another and where did you see the biggest successes on that front yeah the biggest lesson learned was just don't underestimate community and you know i'd say don't overestimate you know vanity statistics like number of followers but don't underestimate community and how powerful community can be so that that was the main lesson i learned then in terms of in terms of kind of what we look for so the fan for the fans it's about it's about two things it's about access and authenticity and you know access in that you know this is an exclusive membership club and it's it's paywalled it's gated and it's and and, and it's it's very exclusive and with with i think with so much with unlimited content at our fingertips for, for Gen Z, we kind of get this scrolliosis where the for you page is literally endless. You know, the YouTube Play Next algorithm is literally endless, and uh, and and that just makes exclusive content and and the aspect of membership all the more powerful. And then authenticity being the second thing, you know, same thing with Instagram, with TikTok, with YouTube, everything you put out there as a creator. Is so highly edited and it's so highly curated and and there's so much effort and energy and time that goes into creating that content and so it really only highlights like the best part of, parts of your life and that creates a lot of 
you know, pressure on people, a lot of mental health issues. And, and, and I think that it, it has left, you know, our generation craving a more authentic experience. And so we saw the, we saw creators and friends doing these either finsters or spam accounts. They're called where, you know, they'll have their main Instagram or their main TikTok, which is for everyone to see. And then they'll have their finster, you know, or their spam account where it'll be just like private and for, for a small amount of close friends. And they're just posting kind of more authentic stuff that's actually, you know, their real life. And so we thought be good to be, have these creators be able to put a paywall on that and, and, and I think, and kind of turn it into a membership club. So it's access and authenticity that really resonates with the fans. Yeah. And what was the biggest success that you saw from like having a creator with such a strong community that basically when they said, okay, I'm moving to this platform, like you saw a huge spike of, of people moving over. Yeah, I mean, we've had creators earning, you know, half a million a month plus. So individual creators and we've had creators, you know, we've had creator, met a creator a couple weeks ago who said that they use their fanfics earnings to retire their mother and to buy a house. And so, and that was extremely exciting. And for most of our creators, they're small to medium-sized creators. So it's really impactful, the, the earnings for them. And, and average creators earning about 70 grand on our platform. And, 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 and so, and, and, you know, they're using that money to pay rent, to feed their kids, to look after their families. And, 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 and it's amazing. Oh, that is amazing indeed. And like, as you mentioned that it took you about six months to build the product and then probably additional three months to polish it up. What was the situation with scaling the product with being able to handle large volume of users at the same time because if you are getting these creators that have large following it can be pretty impactful especially for a new product yeah well we we overestimated the scale we were going to have initially so you know we told the development shop oh well, we have we have 50 million followers worth of creators pledged we're going to convert 10 percent, and then we're going to have 5 million users on the first day so you better build this to scale so you know the, <laughs> the good news was it was built to scale from the get-go. The bad news is we looked like idiots when we had nobody joined. So, so it was built to scale from the beginning, and we were definitely you know, very, 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 very confident, probably overconfident, and, uh, but we definitely, definitely had, had planned for success from the beginning, which, which set us up well. And what in your eyes made the pivotal moment where suddenly you started seeing the user base growing versus initially you were expecting that there will be 5 million users on the first day and then no one showed up. Yeah. I think the first, the first moment where we thought, oh God, we actually, we actually might have something here is where, you know, we were definitely down the dumps a bit after a couple of months of nobody making any money. You know, we had our first subscriber and my partner and I had spent like a thousand dollars each on the platform ourselves. And so every, it was so cool seeing the first person who wasn't actually us, and that was, and then we didn't have another one for, for like two months uh, apart from ourselves. So, so that the first moment was when we had one creator join and really start to make money. I think they made, I think they made something like, something like six thousand dollars in a day, or or eight thousand dollars a day, something like that, and 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 you know converted hundreds of subscribers. 
and the subscribers were loving it and the, and the creator was shocked at how much money they were making that was that was over that was over 3x what they make from a sponsored post for a brand deal and they were just promoting themselves and their own account so they were ecstatic the manager was ecstatic and we realized oh my god if we can go and do this over and over again if if we can if we can replicate this then this is a serious serious business and so I think I you know, always encourage founders that product market fit, don't overcomplicate things. All you need is for, you know, in our case, one creator to make money and convert, you know, the X number of fans, but just focus on getting that one creator to convert or, you know, that one, if you're enterprise, that like that one company to convert and enjoy the the, the experience and benefit from it and, and, and or, or one creator selling one product. So just for us, it was, it was all about getting that first creator really, really, really enjoying it and making money. And we got that and we were like, holy shit, we're off the races. Uh, that's amazing. How do you think the ratio between the brand deals and the revenue that creators can get from subscriptions, how this is going to evolve in the future as like, more platforms are launching their subscriptions and you mentioned that it's extremely difficult for like the medium tier influencers to get to the the brand deals how do you think this is going to evolve and in the future yeah well, we're already seeing that for small to medium creators now direct monetization is the number one source of revenue so i think that that shift is going to only go get greater and greater and and we're very bullish on direct monetization i think it's going to be by far the number one source of revenue for every creator in the next two three years and we're very bullish on the creator economy as well you know we think that creator economy is the future of work there's a massive generation of, of gen z who aspires to be a creator when they grow up and those creators are going to need ways to monetize and and it's it's likely going to be from their directly from their most most loyal fans and so we think being a creator is going to be just as valid lucrative career path in a couple of years as being a lawyer or a doctor or a banker or entrepreneur etc we're very excited about that and, uh, and they're, they're going to need to make they're going to need to be able to make money to support themselves and support their families and platforms like fanfix at the forefront of tried to solve that problem and so it's extremely exciting and, and Brand, look, brand deals are always going to be there for the biggest creators, and there's nothing wrong with them, you know. But 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 they're not ideal. They're definitely not ideal, and they their ads. No one likes creators. Don't like doing them. Fans don't like seeing them. They they usually don't convert for the brand, and and they underserve the vast majority of creators. So it's a good solution for the top zero point zero zero one percent of creators. But for the rest, I think direct monetization is going to be how they're going to be monetizing. What is your take on like the native mobile applications and uh, the whole basically challenge around uh, the App Store rules or Google Play rules versus uh, doing everything in a browser? Yeah, so we are still a progressive web app. We still do not have a native app. And the reason for that is because of the Apple tax. And it is, I mean, I think it's a terrible, terrible the thing that Apple has been allowed to continue this monopoly, you know, in, in Europe, Europe steps ahead where they've uh, passed legislation where Apple is now going to have to allow competitive app stores. And so they won't be able to get away with doing the 30%. But if we were to build a native app, it would mean our creators taking home 
50% or less than 50% of their earnings before even cutting in management or lawyers, et cetera. So, so that's just a crazy, crazy, crazy notion. And, and that's before taxes even as well. So the fact that Apple has been allowed to, 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 to put in this you know, monopolistic tax is, is horrendous. And on top of that, they put themselves in as both the player and the referee. So we've been doing a lot of work with Spotify to, to try and counter this. And I did a podcast recently with Daniel Ek where we discussed this. And uh, you know, he was saying for Spotify, they, take all of, they, they have access to all of Spotify's data, obviously, because Spotify lives in the app store. And they actually have access to, to, to more, than, more data than Spotify has of their own data. And then you know, they use that, to, they charge Spotify 30%. Won't let them. You can't even if you're buying an audiobook, you can't even see what the audiobook is, and 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 then they go and launch a direct competitor, you know, an Apple Music, where they have have free reign over all the data, and obviously don't have to pay themselves the thirty percent tax and have zero restrictions. So it's a terrifying thing that as a startup, you know, as a young entrepreneur, it's like you work so hard to to just get big enough to where you get noticed by the big companies. But then they could crush you and then go and launch competitors. So I think that I think it's horrendous. And I'm very, very optimistic though that, you know, legislation will be passed in the US. Hopefully this summer. I think, you know, we'll go hopefully pen to paper on a bill come July, August. And 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 I, I'm optimistic that I think Gen Z is starting to wake up to to how how terrible this is. And I I think that lawmakers will as well, especially as the Elections coming, but you know it's it's competition is one of the cornerstones of capitalism, and I think that we should promote competition. Competition is a good thing for consumers, and anything that prohibits competition, I oppose. And this apple apple tax just completely prohibits competition. I can see it from both angles, and to me, like you know, when you build such a and I will call it great ecosystem that Apple and Google created within their mobile platforms. Of course, you want to get some benefits out of that. But I feel like right now with so many mobile businesses, uh, they literally have a monopoly in terms of like controlling the screen of the phone. And I, I just wonder... What is your ideal scenario as a way out of this? Yeah, I think my ideal scenario is they should allow competitive app stores where free market economics find out what the optimum price is. It doesn't need to be zero percent. Certainly doesn't need to be zero percent. They can they can make money from this and, and run a very profitable business, but you know, but it's but it's a complete monopoly at the moment. And and yeah, I yeah, I almost see Apple and I, I agree in general. You know the company should be allowed to profit, but they should be allowed to profit in a competitive manner. And yep. I almost see Apple as akin to a government organization. It's like you know, I'm I'm staring at my window right now. You, you know, I pay I pay taxes. I'm staring at my window right now, and like yeah, I saw a police car just go by, and there are roads and traffic lights that are paid for by the government. But you know, I'm I'm making this call on my. You know, I'm not using any of that right now. Whereas I'm making this call on my you know, MacBook Pro and I've got my iPhone right here, my Apple Watch, my Apple TV right there. It's, you know, it's kind of like Apple is in my in my life and in, in everyone's lives more than the government is at this point. So so I think it kind of needs to be treated like a like a like a, a government power. 
Yeah, it, it's the same on my end, so I can definitely yeah. feel you. So as as you could not really make it to the App Store due to the mentioned circumstances that the creators would be basically getting paid half of what they're getting paid now, which is, of course, a dr- dramatic difference. How did you go about, go about the downsides of having a progressive web app? So, I mean, we still deal with it. It sucks. It's, it's, it's not ideal whatsoever. And it's much better for conversion because you, we optimize for swipe ups or link in bios. And there's, it's, a, it's, it's frictionless because you don't have to go and download a native app. But for retention, you know, it sucks because we have, we constantly have creators complaining that they don't post as much content because they can't find the app and it's a pain in the ass to have to go back to Safari and, and, and type it in. We have fans complaining constantly that they subscribed and then they can't even remember what the thing was called. They saw their creators, they swiped on their creator story and then the story disappeared after 24 hours and, and they have no idea where to see their subscription now that they paid 15 bucks for. So, you know, messaging times are slower because it's not at, at the creator or fans' fingertips. So it definitely harms us and definitely means that creators earn a lot less than they would be earning. Yeah. How do you actually make sure that fanfic stands out? You mentioned your differentiation, focusing more on the Gen Z generation and especially between Patreon and, and OnlyFans, of course, like from the explicit content. But what else is there that drives people to join your platform? Because in the end, there is, especially right now, a lot of other different platforms that they could be leveraging. Yeah, so it's it's a couple of things. So first of all, just the Gen Z element. You know, we we built we built what we wanted ourselves. You know, being a young Gen Z team, and we've maintained that that culture and that ethos. And majority of our team is Gen Z, so. Um, we just build what we want to see, and that's a lot more effective than sort of theorizing about an alien generation who may or may not want certain things. So, so I think the the authenticity there has come through. And then also, we we hire creators. You know, we we hire we hire our own customer and 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 our own client, and so that that really you know makes creators want to work with us and 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 they you know submit it from what a mile away and they talk to their creator success manager and it's it's like their friend and it's like their therapist and and so that's that's extremely successful and the just the brand we've built you know we've we've been we've been all authentic and 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 kind of being i think it's i think it's a mix between you know being gen z hiring gen z hiring creators kind of being creators ourselves being our own customer has has allowed us to build a relationship with with these customers that the the very few brands have built. So you know, I use an example like we'll we'll go down to call it Miami Art Basel, and Meta will spend a million dollars on a creator house, flying out the you know big creators and forcing them to come to their events and putting all these provisions in the contracts and you know story posts and everything. And then we'll go down. We won't pay creators anything or fly anyone out and the second those creators can leave the the meta house to come and have dinner with us they'll come and have dinner with us and and come to our event and and and, and post about us you know free of charge so we built a, a brand and a team that creators you know want to want to be aligned with and 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 that's allowed us to do this completely organically that is an achievement indeed and 
like you mentioned, especially like OnlyFans, adult explicit content, right? There is a lot of stigma with those creator platforms because many of them are being used for uh, this purpose. And I will not judge whether it's good or bad. I think everyone can make up their mind. But how do you keep the platform clean with content moderation? Because you mentioned that the brand that you build is extremely important for you. And I believe like keeping the content where it should be is in the end, it defines the brand. Totally. And yeah, on, on the OnlyFans point, you know, we, we don't judge whatsoever. And, and that's a, that's a, you know, that, that platform has, has, has paid a lot of bills. It's supported a lot of families. It's put food on the table for a lot of kids. So as, as in kids of OnlyFans creators. So, so, so we, we certainly don't judge, but there's a much bigger market, we think, of creators that don't want the stigma and, and, and still want to get brand deals and, still want to maybe go and get jobs and, you know, don't want their families to, to, to judge as, as they will with OnlyFans. So, in t- so, so, so we think the market is actually much bigger than OnlyFans market. How we, how we keep it clean. So first of all, we utilize AI for content moderation and AI for, co- for comment moderation and AI also for, for copyright breaches. And that's the first line of defense. And then the second line of defense is is we have human moderators and human moderators they first of all they go and check the AI and then second of all they're constantly scanning through the platform and constantly you know looking through comments and and going through reports and so we we do everything we can and then on top of that I think we have the strictest moderation policies of any mainstream platform on on the internet. That's why, that's why I wanted to ask, what's the policies like? How do you define yourself? Because you're mentioning that it's the strictest. Yeah. So, 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 so first of all, it's most of the policies are just in line with TikTok or Instagram. The, the one policy where we go even further than any platform is quite a funny, quite a funny one. Although it's the worst part of my job, I have to deal with this type of stuff. But the, we have a, a policy of no feet pics. So, so you can't post pictures of your souls, the soles of your feet. And that's quite a funny, quite a funny one. But uh, <laughs> it's just like, you know, we, we know, we knew what people were doing, kind of, you know, posting feet pics. There are that type of stuff, you know, belongs to only fans. So, so, so that I think is, is <laughs> the strictest. That's a policy that Instagram and TikTok don't have. That is, that is funny. And like, we know where it leads, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Like it's been quite an exciting journey for you, I can see. What about Fanfix now? You sold it ten months after launch. Uh, there's growing number of users. Creators love the platform. On track to distribute a lot of money to them. What's coming up next? Yeah. So first of all, just scaling what we're already doing and and just building the brand as much as we can. And I think we've only scratched the surface. You know, from the amount of creators there are right now, let alone where the creator economy is going to be in three, five years. So we want to be the hub for creator monetization. We want to be, you know, TikTok, Instagram, they solve the problem of how do we get distribution? How do we kind of, how, how do creators get discovery? We're the platform for, for monetization. And then there's that Peter Thiel quote that everything in the history of business only happens once. You know, the next, the next Google wasn't a search engine, the next Facebook, you know, isn't, isn't going to be a social media 
platform and we think you know the next kind of generation of of tiktok you know the next social media platform the next generation of tiktok etc the next biggest platform in the world is not going to be a discovery platform it's going to be a monetization platform so the goal is to be the biggest platform in the world and uh, and we're doing everything we can to to do that i i um very excited and definitely plan to stay on and 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 do that okay that that was actually where i wanted to lead next so you can have answered me already because i felt like you you started the project managed to sell it relatively fast and i wa- was wondering whether like you feel the urge of doing something else or actually taking care of the baby and seeing it grow <laughs> No, I'm yeah, definitely getting approached left, right, and center. But trying to trying to kind of keep my head down and, and focus on this as my baby, and uh, definitely definitely want to see it through. And I think we got a lot more to achieve here. So so certainly certainly you know plan on staying on and leading the team. And it's a lot of fun, and and I'm learning a lot. And as long as it's fun, I'm stay. I'm going to stay, and I don't see it not being fun in the near future. What will be some of your tips, considering that you have managed to? achieve this great success in such an early age to grow scale and exit and business yeah i think a few things number one you know just just go for it and the the risk only gets greater and greater and greater and then you know the older you get the riskier it is and there is best time was yesterday second best time is now so just just do it and and then you know second of all i think you you got to you really got to plan for success and you really got to believe and 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 know that you can be successful and it is possible and so and that that mindset will 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 really just shift how you do everything and then i'd say also you know try and I mean, try and try and build a business with impact, and uh, yeah, because there are a lot of boring businesses which make good money but not that fulfilling, and that's definitely an important part of entrepreneurship. Which is it should be fulfilling, and then yeah, I think you know the other thing when it comes to kind of exits is you wanna you wanna build you you wanna sell your company when you don't have to, you don't wanna sell your company when you have to, and so so definitely. Yeah, definitely timing is everything and no one knows, you know, the, the, one of the funnest things about entrepreneurship is you, and same with VC and investing is you can either be the, the biggest idiot in the world or the biggest genius in the world and you won't know for years. So, so, so it's, yeah, so enjoy the ride. <laughs> That's great. And like, how did you go about, were you seeking an exit already or? It was just a pure coincidence that it all worked out. Yeah, we were definitely not seeking an exit. You know, I, I knew, you know, people always ask, oh, do you think, do you think you were going to say, do you think it was, was going to happen? We absolutely thought that we were onto something and this was going to be, and, and we were going to figure out and have a lot of success with this, but I didn't think it was going to happen so quickly. It, it came about much quicker than we thought. We were not going out for an exit we were actually going out for a fundraise and then um you know the parent company the now parent company gave us a a, a term sheet and offer for for majority and, and we took it and you know i think the my my philosophy is sell your business as i said sell your business when you don't have to not not when you have to because there are a lot of businesses who get very nice offers and kind of entrepreneurs who have life chain it life changing offers on the table who turn it down and then end up 
you know, coming to deeply, deeply regret that. And and for us, we're very lucky that you know we're able to get kind of a life changing, life changing result for the team at 21 years old. And 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 we we took that. It seems like it all has been a happy path for you, but I'm pretty sure that it was not. And I would love to hear what would you say was the biggest challenge on the way? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's all about, it's just all about your mindset. It's like, there are certainly some very bad things that happen. I mean, there are certainly, you know, we got a lot of no's along the way that, you know, that, and they, and they don't teach you in school how to deal with rejection like that. So, and, and, you know, in, in life, you don't really get rejected as much. I don't think, I don't think you ever get rejected as much as you do when you're going out to fundraise as a first time entrepreneur. So that was, I mean, that was the, the worst, probably, probably one of the worst things. The other thing is obviously, you know, we were students at the time and we sacrificed a lot, never done a spring break when all my friends were going on holiday and doing spring breaks, you know, we were working and definitely missed a lot of, a lot of fun, but, but, but look, I mean, just, just mindset wise, we've, we've been so lucky with so many things that I just don't like to, that's why, you know, pitch is a happy story because, you know, I, I, Definitely don't want to stand here and play victim and and kind of you know pontificate about how awful we had it. We we were really really lucky with a lot of things. We made <laughs> some sacrifices, but 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 you know definitely had a lot of lot of luck along the way. Had an amazing outcome, and and we, yeah, we're, we're we're delighted. Seems like you still stay to be very humble and down to earth, despite you know achieving this great success. How do you make sure that you actually stay sane? with everything that is go- going on around you. Yeah, I think in terms of the, the, the humbleness and also the sanity, it's the, the, the Winston Churchill quote I started off with it at the beginning. It's, you know, success is not final, failure is not fatal, it's the courage to continue that counts. And it's so true. Like, yes, yes, we've had some success. Yes, that's very nice, but that's not necessarily final. And, you know, just as if, and maybe the next business, you know, who knows, entrepreneurs always have failures, you know, but, but it's but it's failure is not fatal either, and it's the the courage courage to continue that that counts. So that that I look to a lot. I think also my my favorite poem is "If" by Rudyard Kipling, and and you know another. I think there are a couple of really. I mean, the whole poem is is incredibly insightful. But there are a couple of it, you know fantastic quotes. You know, one is if he can keep his head when when all about him are losing theirs. Yeah, I think you it's. It's your individual responsibility to to kind of maintain sanity however you can. And the other one is if he can walk with kings, not lose the common touch. And I think you know, have, when you're an entrepreneur, you have a little bit of success. It's easy to to sort of quote lose the lose the common touch. But 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 it's I think you know one must one must stay humble. One one must kind of do whatever they can to stay sane. One must use pressure and stress to fuel you rather than break you. This is amazing, and I'm so happy that we are ending on the high note. I wish you that the journey continues and that you manage to fulfill your vision of scaling the platform further, and maybe we will even see that Apple might change some rules and will be able to welcome you to the App Store at some point. But we'll definitely keep an eye on the journey. I just wanted to add a little note that based on my records, It feels like you have been so far the youngest entrepreneur on our show. So I'm very happy about that too. Thank you very much, Lubo. It was really great to meet you and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please follow us on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. 
and we'll be thankful if you leave us a review. That's it for now. Till next time on the Next Level Show.